You are listening to the Through the Bible Studio Series with Pastor Nate Holdridge. Join us as we continue our study through the New Testament book of Matthew. Here's Nate. Well, as we've journeyed through Matthew's gospel, we've seen Jesus establishing his kingdom and beginning to teach and instruct and, you know, really give in many ways a peek inside the future manifestation of his kingdom in the sense of total victory over the demonic realm and healing of all sickness. These are shadows, of course, of the coming age that he is bringing his children into, a place where Satan and the demonic realm will be fully and completely vanquished, but also a place where there will be no tear, where there will be no sickness, where there will be no sorrow at all. And so Jesus is really being presented in this way by Matthew as he records the introduction to this great King, Jesus Christ. And as we turn to Matthew chapter 10, we get a chance to see Jesus raising up his disciples and preparing them and really speaking to them mostly about the kind of life that they would be called to as his disciples and the, in many ways, difficult task that was in front of them to evangelize the world. And so let's read this together, beginning in Matthew 10, verse 1. It says that he called to him his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. And so we see here, first of all, this incredible principle that Jesus takes authority that belongs to him and he loans it out here for a moment in this passage to his disciples, to his men. And so he calls these 12 together and he gives them this authority and power, basically, is another way that word authority could be translated. And what you have here is Jesus sending his disciples, but notice that he's unwilling to send his disciples without also empowering his disciples. And I've found often, at least in my own life, that the command of Christ is also the power and the enabling of Christ. And unfortunately in my life, I've so often forgotten this so that when I receive the command of Christ and the commissioning of Christ to go into such and such a place or to do such and such a thing, I'll often go with such a lack of authority and power because I forget that the power and the authority rest with Christ and that just by him sending me, that means that he is going to infuse or wants to infuse his life, his authority, his power into me for that individual moment. And so Jesus here in this moment gives his disciples, the 12, authority over unclean spirits, number one, to cast them out, and number two, over every disease and every affliction. Now, verse two, we have a list of the names of these 
disciples. And in verse 2, Matthew actually refers to them as apostles. He says, the name of the 12 apostles were these. Now, it makes plenty of sense for Matthew to speak of these disciples as apostles in this context, because the word apostle merely means a messenger or a sent out one. Now, that title apostle, which means messenger or sent out one, became in the early church a title of a very official capacity. These apostles who had apostolic authority there in the early church, which and still have authority over us in the form of the written word of God. But here they are sent out, and so we have a list of them as apostles, not merely disciples. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother. James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, Philip, and Bartholomew. Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, our author. James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus. Simon, the Canaanian, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. And so you have every apostle sent out. And of course, this tells us that Judas was one of the disciples slash apostles that was sent out by Jesus in this two-by-two manner. And of course, he was on a team. We don't know who his teammate was, but he was on a team. Now, in verse 5, it says, the 12 Jesus sent out. And so, at the close of chapter 9, telling the disciples that the harvest is plentiful and the laborers are few, therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. After telling his disciples to pray for laborers, these men actually then become the laborers. And I find that this is often the case. We pray and we cry out to God, but many times we are the solution and the answer to the prayer that we may cry out to God with. And so he instructed them in verse 5, and, and this is what Jesus said. He said, go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So the first part of Jesus' direction in verse 5 and 6 is simply to make sure that they don't go, number one, to the Gentiles and the Samaritans, and that they do go to the house of Israel. Now this, at first glance, of course, sounds rather exclusive. Uh, but Jesus is basically telling his disciples he wants them to focus on Israel and upon the Jewish people and race. And later, of course, in the book of Acts, Jesus is going to instruct these same men to communicate the message into Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And he would take them through a process uh, during the book of Acts era where by the power of the Holy Spirit, their eyes would be opened, their hearts would broaden, and they would eventually fall in love with the Gentile world and preach the gospel to every kind of person and creature on earth. There would be a universal ability to, you know, to preach the gospel in a universal kind of sense across uh, color, race, ethnic, barriers. All of that would be decimated by the cross, but 
as Paul said in Romans chapter 1, the gospel message had to be to the Jew first and also for the Greek. So here Jesus is backing that up. At this moment, the message and the ministry that these men would conduct would go first to Israel, but this would not be their forever commission. And verse 7, he said, and proclaim as you go. I love that little line, as you go. As they were moving, they were to proclaim, saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. You received without paying, give without pay. So uh, he commissions them to a truly radical kind of life. He's really sending them in a very strong way. Gives them commissions to heal sick, raise dead, cleanse lepers, and cast out demons. There's great power in the lives of these men. Now, when we read the book of Acts, it's easy to read it as if every single day was some major supernatural event. And to forget that there was 30 years or so of history being recorded about the early church in the book of Acts. And to realize that many of these things took place over time. That said, it's obvious that the book of Acts does not record every single supernatural event or healing or demonic activity that is dealt with by the power of the blood. Not all of that could have been recorded in the confines of the book of Acts. And so, you know, on the one hand, we have to put it in perspective and realize, listen, not every day was this big supernatural kind of experience in a real outward kind of sense. But on the other hand, there was activity. And I know for me, whenever I come across something that is overtly uh, demonic or talk to a person who is clearly experiencing some kind of demonic activity in their life, or uh, when we are getting an opportunity to pray for many sick people and start hearing reports of a person being healed or touched or whatever it might be. These aren't the rock solid, you know, this will happen in this day and age 100% of the time promises from God. No, there will be times that we will grow sick and we will die and we will go to meet the Lord. We will suffer along with everyone else, just like Jesus came, incarnated and suffered for us. He joined in with our sorrow. And so we can follow our master in suffering like many other, but it's hard not to see the just the absolute power that these men were expressing, the power of Christ upon their lives. And I think we would do well to desire to see the strength and the authority and the grace of God come upon us in a very strong and dynamic way. And Jesus goes on and he says, acquire no gold. Now he talks to them of their provision for this journey that he sends them on. Acquire no gold, nor silver, nor copper for your belts, no bag for your journey, nor two tunics, nor sandals, nor a staff, for the laborer deserves his food. Now, when he sent them out at the end of the Gospel of Luke, Jesus would actually then, at that moment, tell them to bring all of these items. You know, provide for yourself. Bring gold and silver and copper and tunics and a staff because you're about to head into persecution and people aren't going to take care of you as you ought to be cared for. So watch out for yourself. There are difficult days coming. But here 
he tells them not to bring these things. And I think there are two major principles that Jesus is trying to communicate to his disciples. Number one, the provision from the Father to his laborers. That as they sought first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, all of these things would be added unto them. He's teaching them a lesson of trust. You go out, you serve me, and watch. My Father will take care of you. But I think a secondary lesson that's being taught as well is found in his words, the laborer deserves his food, or the laborer is worthy of his wages. And this would be a guiding principle in the New Testament epistles, especially the pastoral epistles, when Paul would give directions on payment and provision for the elders and pastors within a local church, especially those who labored in the word and doctrine. They were to be cared for and provided for by the people within the church themselves. And so I think that principle is beginning to be taught by Christ as well. Uh, No longer the offering given to the priesthood and the priesthood being provided for in that kind of way. But now there's a shift and you have not necessarily a new priesthood, but you have these leaders within the church and Christ is setting this pattern of provision for them. Then he says in verse 11, he says, and whatever town or village you enter, find out who is worthy in it and stay there until you depart. As you enter the house, greet it. And if the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. What an interesting statement from Christ. The the peace of these apostles to come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. There's just something about the man or woman of God walking into a home, into an atmosphere, and their peace resting upon that place. It's just a, there's a powerful thing in the man or the woman of God. And verse 14, if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. Truly, I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. And so a couple of things that Jesus is saying here. First of all, he tells these men, listen, if they reject, don't take it personally. Just shake off the dust from your feet. And I find that far too often we are overly sensitive about being rejected as believers. Here Jesus tells them to shake off the dust from their feet. Just move on to the next town. Don't let it settle inside of your heart. Don't let that root of bitterness grow. But secondly, he says in verse 15, that it would be more tolerable or bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for this town, a town who rejected the message of these apostles slash disciples. And, of course, what Jesus is introducing in one sense is a scale of the difficulty or the severity of eternal judgment. That eternal judgment would be present. Uh, However, there will be a scale within that judgment. And for some people, it will be less tolerable than for others. And 
Here he points out Sodom and Gomorrah, who in the Old Testament were so fallen and so depraved, given to militant homosexual activity, very aggressive in their sexual pursuits, and a very fallen culture. Here Jesus says they will have an easier time in the judgment than these people who had the message so loud and clear. They had received so much revelation. And so really, it seems that the judgment and the severity of judgment is attached to the severity of or the clarity of revelation itself. Now, verse 16, he goes on and he says, Behold, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. You know, he just announces to them, listen, this is going to be difficult. You will be like sheep in the midst of wolves. So there's a wisdom like serpents and an innocence or a harmlessness that you're going to need to have. They, they need to be crafty and they need to be shrewd, but they'd also need to be loving and approachable in their ministry. And this is one of the fascinating things about serving the Lord, especially for these men. The, the, they would be exposed to the demonic realm in such a, a uh, harsh, stark, confrontational kind of way. They would see the ugliest of mankind and culture. But on the other hand, they had to pray with people and pastor people and counsel people and serve people. And so a great task in front of them to have the wisdom and the innocence or the gentleness that was required for ministry. He says, verse 17, Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues. So he's just announcing to them the difficulty that they're about to engage in. And you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. Now, the scope here that Jesus is addressing them with is moving far beyond just this little moment of being sent out for a brief period of time. He's trajecting out now into the early church, into the days of the book of Acts, and talking to them of the trial and the difficulty, tribulation that was going to come in their lives. And when they deliver you over, verse 19, when you're arrested, Do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. So he tells them specifically when they were arrested and persecuted, he tells them, listen, when that occurs in your life, don't worry about what you're going to say in that moment and in that hour the Holy Spirit will give you the words to speak. Now, this, of course, doesn't give a Bible teacher some kind of license to just open their Bible and talk. There's a an element of preparation that is required for that. But if your audience happens to be those who have arrested you and thrown you in prison and beaten you, then Jesus is saying no preparation is required. The Holy Spirit will speak through you. And this, of course, was an important directive from Jesus. And if you're anything like me, you've read the book of Acts and you've seen these different moments where they were arrested, thrown into prison, and then brought before rulers. 
And their words, whether it's Peter and John and some of the earlier apostles, or whether it's Paul and the second half of the book of Acts, the words that they speak, you know, under persecution, Stephen and Acts 7, when the Sanhedrin was persecuting him and he became the first martyr, the words that they speak are so powerful, so clever, so sharp, so so much better than anything that I would have ever planned to say. And that was the Holy Spirit of God working in them. And this promise, I believe, stands for persecuted believers even today. He says in verse 21, he says, Brother will deliver brother over to death. And so now he speaks of the division caused by Christ. And the father his child. And children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. And so Jesus, in one sense, is letting them know that he would follow up with their ministry. Uh, But he speaks to them of this extreme division, division in families, in friendships, and in culture as a result of the gospel and as the result of a hatred for Christ. And, you know, modern believers, we have to anticipate that there will be times that our faith and our trust in Christ is, you know, on one hand, at times, accepted, embraced, And we see people come to Christ. But there will be plenty of times where people will hate, despise, and there will be division within our lives as a result of the gospel. I just spoke with a man yesterday who told me of his brother-in-law who had recently become a Christian in the last year or two and is walking strongly with the Lord. But his parents are atheists and, and he grew up in that kind of home and The persecution that these parents are bringing against their son, the kinds of words that they're saying, uh, you know, just total insensitivity and, and really a hatred, deep down inside a hatred for what has occurred is difficult for believers to deal with. Jesus goes on in verse 24 and says, A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. You know, if Jesus suffered, then of course we will suffer as well. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they call the master of the house Beelzebul or Beelzebub, how much more will they malign those of his household? Now, Beelzebul simply means Lord of the flies. And it was a phrase that the Jews had come to apply to Satan. And of course, the rumors had spread that Jesus was doing the things that he'd done by the power of Satan. And so Jesus is saying, listen, if that's the kind of accusation that they've brought against me so far, you can only imagine what they're going to think of to say about you. And so let us not be surprised, believers, by rejection. Verse 26, Jesus goes on and says, So have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. And in other words, everything will be exposed. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light. 
Be the salt, be the light of the world. And what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. And whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. Here in this little paragraph, Jesus really addresses the issue of the fear of man. And it's connected, of course, to this commission that he gives his disciples. But the fear of man is a snare, the Proverbs tell us. And here Jesus says, listen, you know, I know that it's a fearful thing to preach what I tell you and to proclaim it on the housetops, but do it. Don't fear those who can harm your body, but fear the one who can harm your soul. And of course, he's speaking of God. And then he gives this thing about, you know, listen, sparrows are sold for next to nothing and not even one of them dies without the father knowing. And the father knows the hairs on your head. I mean, he numbers them. So Jesus is saying, listen, your father cares for you. He loves you. Don't fear man. Fear God. The father knows you. The father loves you. So preach the gospel. Acknowledge him before men and he will acknowledge you. And so a powerful remedy Jesus is giving for the fear of man. Remember God. Now verse 34, he says, Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. Now, this isn't the goal of Jesus to bring a sword, but it's the result, really, of his ministry. He did really come ultimately to bring peace, to reconcile man to God. He's the prince of peace and all of that. But here what he's saying is, listen, this might not be the goal to have the sword. It might not be the means that I use. He doesn't use the sword to convert anybody. But the result, the result is division, violence. For I've come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. So steep words concerning discipleship from Jesus. And just the glory of understanding that, listen, I might be at odds with people who are close with me in my life as a result of the gospel. But if I lay down my life, if I lose my life, I will actually find it in Jesus. Speaking of the great blessing of serving, of evangelizing, of standing with and for Christ. Now to close this chapter, he says in verse 40, Whoever receives you, receives me. And whoever receives me, receives him who sent me, the Father. The one who receives a prophet because he is a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. And the one who receives a righteous person, because he is a righteous person, will receive a righteous person's reward. It's rewarding to receive Christ. And whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is a disciple, truly, I say to you, he will by no 
means lose his reward. Nothing gets by the eyes of Jesus. He sees all and will remember the smallest deeds that we do in his name. So, believer, serve the Lord with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Stand with the Lord. Understand division will come, but his power, allow it to rest upon your life. God bless you, and amen. Thank you for listening. For additional resources and teachings, or to contact us, please visit us at nateholdridge.com.